people don't want to work for you anymore. Doesn't matter how good your pay is, your benefits, your flexible working policy. They don't want to work for you. They do want you to work with them. And that for me is heralding an age where we need a greater adult-adult partnership happening within organizations. Hey everyone, this is Angie Wachowski. I am joined by the awesome Stephanie Cox, founder of Blue Sky Ambition. And we are here this year with the Bet On You podcast talking about transformation, changing some aspect of your life. You're perfect, we know, but perhaps there's something in your life that you wanna work on to get even better. I know for many of us too, we work on teams. Teams at work is now the team sport. So if you were a college athlete or a high school athlete, guess what? That is behind you. Work is where you suit up. This is your team. This is your sport. And if you're motivated and inspired, you can discover, because I've heard from so many people, people, and likely you've seen this yourself, that not everybody is coming out of the pandemic revved up as you are ready to go. So this is going to be the focus of our conversation. And Stephanie, I know you were a CEO leading a business through the pandemic and then post-pandemic too, just kind of looking at the workplace. How have you seen changes in the workplace, pandemic, now post-pandemic? What have what have been some of your observations? I think just in a short period of time, you know, we're three years in this time frame. Everyone pulled together during the pandemic and we all did the most extraordinary things to keep businesses running. There was huge flexibility. There was huge trust. Um, I think we all worked probably more than normal as well. The lines were blurred. And then now as you could say normal's coming back and businesses are, are coming back to the office or still trying to come back to what was, they're struggling with it because it's never going to be the same, never going to be uh, a traditional work environment. So I think a, a big change is people want more flexibility. You know, they, they've demonstrated that they can do extraordinary things in a different way of working and they want to maintain that. And that's hard when companies are trying to look at how can they look at performance. So I think flexibility and trust is something that has shifted. You could say it shifted positively and also maybe negatively. And I think people are navigating through that. I have seen with a lot of the work that I do in the consulting space too, that there is just a general tiredness, exhaustion, burnout. I mean, I guess within those descriptions, there's a range of how you are feeling depleted. I have noticed that it's like I can only work hard for so long, you know, after you run a marathon, the next day you shouldn't run another marathon. And yet that's often what people are being asked to do at work. And that just weighs on you. So I feel like right now the sentiment is if I'm revving to go and I'm rested, I'm like, come on team, catch up. A lot of people just aren't there right now. And it's a lot of resistance too. And it's probably a lot of mental health challenges unaddressed. I don't know if you've been seeing that too. I mean, you've got kids in the workforce. You've got a daughter in college. I've got a son in college. It's, it's, it's kind of amazing to me to hear about some of the challenges that I hear. I agree. I th and one thing I think people are more comfortable saying, I'm not going to come to work physically if they're not feeling well, you know, that the pandemic, I think gave the permission more so that don't come to the work if you're sick 
because we don't want it. I think that's a positive because they may still be able to work, but they're not getting everyone, uh, they're not contagious in that way. But I think for me, one of the things I like being in person with someone and I like working one-on-one or with groups with people, but the pandemic brought this Zoom teams culture where you can be more efficient in terms of getting a lot of meetings done, but the connection is different. So for my kids who either went to high school during COVID or college during COVID and now in the workforce, and you could say the new generations coming into the workforce, how do you develop those relationships, those skills, and how can you um, learn and be present? And I think that that flexibility that companies are giving there also needs to be that presenteeism. And that's the word in our next podcast. I love that presenteeism. Well, I've noticed that the decline of small talk, it's a skill skill decline, not just the, the level of it. The skill decline is, is one thing and just this interpersonal and even the cameras on that sometimes we miss out in those moments. One of the biggest languages, well, the first language is definitely the biggest language that's a part of our society is body language. And we miss out on that so much. Well, I'm excited to have our next guest. We wanted to invite Kate Bravery onto the podcast. Now, she's a partner and global leadership expert. She works for Mercer, but more importantly, she spots workplace trends. And her new book, Work Different, is just phenomenal. 10 steps to engaging, leading, developing people in this new post-pandemic environment. I love the book. Stephanie, you are raising it above your head, saying every HR leader, you better read this. HR leader and business leaders. Um, and if you like pop culture in terms of music, it's really cleverly done. Well, let's um, not wait any longer. Let's invite Kate to the stage. Hey, everyone, you're here. We're with Kate Bravery. Hey, thank you so much for joining us on the Bet on You podcast. We are in love with your work. Stephanie and I are, that is. We're in love with your work that focuses on people leadership, people development in the post-pandemic space. Now, before we get to asking you all the questions about your work, we want to know a little bit about you, your background, your story that brought you to where you are today. Well, firstly, Angie and Stephanie, thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. I'm a real fan. I'm really glad to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Um, as I was saying before, I don't often get asked that question, interestingly enough. But, um, you know, I started my career, um, well, actually, even before I started my career, when I was about 13, I decided I wanted to become a psychologist. I was probably one of the first kids in the school to say, I know what I want to be when I go older, because I found about this profession called psychology, which was all about the mind and how you're thinking. I'm like, isn't that the coolest thing to do? Wouldn't you want to like understand, you know, why some people are your friends and some people aren't your friends, how you form groups, how you make decisions, you know, whether some people are clever or other. So I thought it was the coolest thing. Then of course I get into the reality of it and everybody wants you to do clinical psychology. And I did a a few stints uh, in a mental health home and thought, you know what? Maybe that's not the best quality of life that I can have. And I have so much respect for people who do that. Um, but I had the opportunity um, when I finished my degree to work for American Express, which was in, in-house. And I was blown away at how their strong sense of, at the time it was called their blue box values and how those values permeated everything. 
and it was almost cultish. But I know people now who were with American Express 30 years ago and still talk about the values they instilled in them as a human. And that got me thinking, wow, we spend so much of our life at work. Organizations can have a phenomenal shape on who we are and who we grow up to be. After American Express, I then had the opportunity to go into consulting, which I loved. I worked for a fantastic consulting firm in the UK that got me at a very young age flying around the world. Obviously, I felt too young um, and too short to um, actually fess up to be doing profiling with CEOs and CFOs. I think I was 21 or so at the time, but it was a great experience. And it was experience of if you have a, a senior leader who believes in you and says age is not, a, not an issue, it's about who you are, how you show up, how you conduct yourself, it can really change, I think, the trajectory of your career. So I have you know, a wonderful mentor in Marjorie Knight, a Kaizen consultant who believed in me very, very young and, and set me on that course. And then after a number of years of working in the UK, I had an opportunity to work in, in New York, love my experience in the US. But then I also had the opportunity to work seven years in Australia. So I got to do lots of work in India and Australia and Pacific and lots of consulting there all around the talent space. So my passion is around talent management, profiling, assessment, succession, talent management. Um, and I had a wonderful team in Australia of mainly female organizational psychologists. Um, so I loved it. It was in my element. And then an opportunity came to move to Hong Kong. And the opportunity in Hong Kong was exciting because it's about being part of the China leadership team. And I think when you fly in and out of a country, you don't really get to understand the values, the ways of working, unless you actually manage a team or you actually do business there. So to actually be based in Hong Kong when we were very much doing lots of work in Beijing and Shanghai was really exciting. So I left Australia, took up um, running the Hong Kong office for Mercer and massive shock to the system. It was an all-guy team. They all had e-commerce backgrounds. They did something called executive comp. It was really different to the, the women that I had the pleasure of, uh, of leading and were a lot of my friends um, in Australia. And I'm not sure I'd recommend anyone to change countries, change companies, and kind of change business all at the same time. But anyway, um, after a a bumpy, uh, bumpy six months. Uh, uh, I loved it. And I, I loved the work that I got to do in, in China, which I think shaped a lot of my thinking and my values. And then because of some of the political arrests that was happening in Hong Kong, um, my family and I, I had two children in Hong Kong, decided to come back to the UK. And I think, you know, I write a lot on trends. It was about three months before the pandemic. So everybody said to me, did you know? Did you know? <laughs> of course, I didn't know. <laughs> um, you didn't but, predict the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I did predict some other things that uh, um, the pandemic actually ended up making come true quicker because, as you know, it exposed a lot of trends and it accelerated a lot of trends. So it's been really interesting. I'm now based in Brighton, um, working for the London office of Mercer. And now I think dealing the wrong, fallout is the wrong word, but dealing with the fundamental way that our attitudes towards work and our workplaces has changed post-COVID is really interesting. And after 20 years of traveling around the world, um, I'm now grounded with two children in school, back in my hometown of Brighton, but a hometown that I hadn't seen because we were caught in a pandemic for a number of years with pretty excessive lockdowns over here. So so that's a little potted history of where I've been and what I've got Love up it. to. <laughs> Kate, I have been so excited to listen and learn from you. I loved your new book, Work Different. 
Um, I've, I've led HR in a company for many years, and it was very meaningful. Um, it's a fun read and also a serious read. And you're right about spotting the trends. And some of the biggest trends that I took away were the flexibility. And as people are wanting more flexibility and they're going through transformations, this is the theme of Angie's Bet on You podcast, Transformation. Uh, people want flexibility, and that's a big shift for many companies today. Could you share a little bit more about what that means individually for people and, and also for companies? Yeah, absolutely. I think flexibility has dominated the airways when we came through the pandemic, and initially for some very good reasons, because I think executives woke up to the fact that actually work can be done in a myriad of different ways to the way it had done before. And I think it was back in 2017, I coined the term permanent flexibility in global talent trends, thinking, oh, we'll all be working flexibly now. Now the technology is there to enable it. And you and I both know it's not down to the technology, it's down to the culture. And what are the implications for making choices to work from home and not work from home? So I was really excited after the pandemic because I did feel, see, we can do it. You know, We had proven that uh, we can actually be more productive we can be healthier, we can be more engaged, and we can still innovate um, when we have different flexible work options. And I think as a woman with two young children, um, it does advantage us more. Um, in fact, advantage is the wrong word. I think it levels the playing field. So I was really excited about that. Um, I think we've learned a lot, though, about what flexible working at scale looks like and what does it take to get right over the years that have, have happened since. What I would say, and I'm just doing looking at the Global Talent Trends 2024 data as we speak, employees' desire to move from sort of fixed ways of working where they have no choice to options that make sense for them is still there. And so the desire to work for a company that has flexible work arrangements, but more importantly, allows individuals to say how I think this job can be done well is a consistent. We are seeing, though, more appreciation for hybrid work arrangements than remote only. And I think that's because we have seen that in some organizations, that sense of belonging, that sense of learning the social norms, um, learning through learning business et etiquette and ways of working by partnering with people didn't work so well when you had cohorts that were remote. Sometimes it didn't work well because we didn't spend enough time figuring out how to have a more inclusive team meeting when we've got some people at home, some people in person. Sometimes it didn't, didn't work out because there was executives that had that view that once we get back to work, back to normality, things will change. And so I think people self-selected out from those options. Um, but I agree with you. I believe flexible working is here to stay. I think it's part of what we call, as you'll know in the book, the life, lifestyle contract. And we're seeing that the younger people, particularly those digital first natives, are craving for that. So I do believe that companies that cut off that option are going to find it really hard to catch up when we have digital businesses and digital first natives competing together. And I think that's probably the bigger risk if we don't figure out how to make it work and how do we keep people thriving and feeling belonging and included. And it takes hard work. I imagine I think about the skills. It is hard work. It's hard listening. It's hard empathy that we have to demonstrate. And there's a lot of trust. And I'd love for you to comment on this because I do work with a lot of teams who are, you know, in the past year and a half, I'll say, you know, coming back together. 
And it's not that there's mistrust or distrust. It just, to me, what I'm observing is that the strength of relationships aren't there. So I don't know how to trust or to the extent that I can trust us all. And again, people are coming back. Some people transform. Some people radically changed in a pandemic environment. So you might look the same, but you're a completely life circumstance different person. Can you talk about how the pandemic impacted trust for teams and what teams can do about re-engaging and rebuilding trust? Because it's a just a really challenging environment for these interpersonal relationships right now. And I'm actually fascinated that you brought up the topic of trust because we, as I said, we're just looking through the data at the moment. And what we actually saw coming out of the pandemic was an increase in trust. Trust in organizations to do the right thing by society, by the right thing by me, to um, find me a job if AI disrupts my job was actually at an all-time high. And that's because we'd gone through this pandemic together and executives had really become a lot more vulnerable, a lot more open, having more open dialogue because we were all facing problems that no one was an expert on. And so uh, for me, who looks at um, employee sentiment data, trust was off the scale. Just looked at the 2024 data and it's dropped by about 10 to 15, in some places, 20 percentage points. So over the last year, we have definitely lost some of that trust that had been invested in us by, um, by employees. What we also see is when we look at why people stay with an organization, one of the things that's really interesting is the influence of the manager on why people stay has bottomed out. It's now 20 out of 20 in all the options as to why you stay. And we say, it's about 12,500 people, we say, are you thinking of staying in the next 12 months or are you thinking of leaving? If people are leaving, we ask why they're leaving. We ask for the people who are staying, we ask why they're staying. And I think that's fascinating because you're absolutely right. Trust today is about, do I trust the organization is doing the right thing? Do I trust the organization is making the right decisions for society and for it to be a thriving business in the future? Do I trust my coworkers to have my back? Am I working in a trusting environment? It's not just that didactic relationship that we might've had with our manager. And I think that's a really big shift and it's an unexpected shift for me coming out of this pandemic. So you're right, it's the quality of those co-worker relationships. Um, people's sense of trust is also related to two other factors. One, do I have a friend at work that I would actually have a conversation with outside the work environment? Which is why, particularly if people join remotely, buddying people up with someone early on and forcing those connections is critical. Secondly, trust is intimately connected with equity. And we've just gone through a cost of living crisis our pay does not go far enough. And how do you think people feel when they see new starters join at 15 to 20% higher pay when you factor in their sign-on bonus, their pay increase? And that's beginning to rub. Paying new hires, in the book we talk about, does it pay to stay? The difference between switchers earning more versus stayers and the fact that we've moved away from valuing loyalty. Um, so I think that's eating away at people. I think we still got huge pay equity issues um, between the genders. The pension gap, I'm sitting here in the UK today, 40% between men and women. So women are 40% less wealthy at retirement age. I mean, how can that be in a developed economy? And now we've also got equity issues between 
people who might for have elected to have flexible arrangements or work from home because it works better for them and those on site. And there's a real concern about promotion opportunities, how presenteeism will play into decisions at the end of the year. And, and we know that that's something that we, we need to address. So I do feel that those are some of the equity things that just eat away at people when they feel there is, is not equal opportunities. And organizations, I think, that are getting this right are beginning to be much more transparent about pay, much more transparent about career opportunities. And they're embracing what we call skills-powered organizations because it's very hard to fix sort of pay transparency and sense of equity if people can't see the jobs available, if they can't see the pathways, if they don't understand the implications of the decisions they make. And the good news is I think some of the AI talent marketplace platforms or AI intelligence systems are helping solve that. But if we don't address it, it eats away at people. We end up with people staying, but discontent. And I think going into 2024, that's the biggest risk that we have. Not the people who leave, but the people who stay, particularly if we don't fix some of these equity issues. And to that point, when we ask why are people leaving, fairness and fair pay jumped into the second position. I've never seen it in the top five. So I think that just underscores that if we don't get it right, our top talent will leave. There's, there's a lot of shifts that are taking place and they're happening at such a rapid pace, Kate. And you talk a lot about skills being the new currency. And I'd say when people are looking at their career path or um, you know, making a transformation in their career, typically it's a hierarchical. You know, what do I need to do to get that promotion? What do I need to do to move ahead? How can I develop myself? you're almost flipping the script on it. And, and I think it's a big mindset shift for many. So could you share a little bit about what you're thinking about in communicating in this new people age? Absolutely. And I might start with that shift. So I think you know that very first chapter is goodbye employees, hello contributors. And I wrote that because I recognized even with my team to these People don't want to work for you anymore. doesn't matter how good your pay is, your benefits, your flexible working policy. They don't want to work for you. They do want you to work with them. And that, for me, is heralding an age where we need a greater adult-adult partnership happening within organizations. And the reason why we need it is because of these other changes that are happening. Nothing is fixed anymore. We need to be constantly renegotiating around pay renegotiating around flexible work arrangements because what you wanted you know six months ago might be different to six months time because your life situation changes managers just haven't been asked to do that in the past let alone asked to do that across geographic temporal you know and cultural boundaries so yes that that has got really tough one of the things that i think has a win-win for both the employee and the employer is this move to skills fueled organizations a win for employers because they recognize throughout the pandemic, wow, we can flow people that have maybe been fixed in this department or fixed in this job to an opportunity over here. It was really exciting for individuals because they started to learn new skills, make new connections, which they crave. It was exciting for the business because untapped capacity was being used in new ways. And that whole hierarchical progression that you talked about dropped away. Now, it's wonderful what we do when we've got a big mission like a pandemic to solve. Um, how do we take some of that learning about flowing talent to opportunity 
um, getting away from that hierarchical mindset and creating that moment, that movement so that it does pay to stay because you're getting growth, you're staying employable, you're inspired. And those are some of the pieces that I think we've lost. And if we cling to the past, which has been quite hierarchical with annual performance review, annual successions, we're just going to see more of our top talent go out the door. If, on the other hand, we help them identify what skills they have today, we help um, show them all the opportunities where they can build new skills. And if we could get them skills coaches, so this person's really good at this, you want to learn this, why don't you guys spend some time together? I think it's a much more human way of developing people in the workplace. And much as I love the edX revolution that happened during the pandemic, watching hours and hours of of YouTube videos probably isn't my favorite way to learn. Um, and I like this more human networked approach that, that's come out through these more skills-based organizations. I love that idea, human networked approach. I, could you speak to an individual manager right now? So imagine that I have motivation, I have inspiration, I, I want to you know, grow my team, we want to achieve amazing things together and uh, you said very early on that the pandemic exposed a lot of things that were already existing in our workplace that weren't necessarily healthy, mental health challenges, um, disengagement. And again, speak to this manager who has a team who's coming together with various levels of healthy mind, motivation, commitment. How do you navigate that? How do you make your your way forward with your team? How do you build that perhaps individual approach to managing a collective. Yeah. I mean, for me, the most exciting conversation to be having at the moment that I would have with him, but not, or him or her, but not with the team, is we are on the cusp of an era of amplified intelligence. With generative AI coming in, we've got a lot of opportunity to increase productivity. And so I think the productivity equation has been changing. It is about AI, for skill development, um, but it's also about health. If you don't have people who are inspired, feeling healthy, well-being, that you have their back, you're not going to move off the starting blocks. So for me, the very first thing that I think any new leader needs to be doing is creating that climate where people feel they have psychological safety, they feel that they are heard, they feel that they're understood, and it feels that it doesn't matter what your tenure is, what your background is, what your race, what your gender is, we want to hear from you. Because one thing that I think large language models are doing is they're leveling the playing field, but the diversity of the humans matter even more. So I think the first thing is to say, we value the humans on our team, and all your quirky differences and interests is what's going to make us a great team. Because if you don't have that climate, none of the other good stuff come from that. The second thing, and you brought it up earlier, was about team management and team accountability. With the flatter structures we have in organizations today, it's not about the traditional performance management process. It's about how can an individual contract well with its peers so that it maintains those peer relationships um, it manages its time efficiently and effectively. It plans and prioritizes, and it creates contracts around delivering a meeting expectation to peers. And that's a new skill that I think a lot of individuals, particularly in our hybrid world, have been grappling with. And thirdly, back to the point that we brought on before about skills, um, the companies that have inspired me the most are the ones that have instilled a sense of curiosity in their teams. I love Novartis' unbossed culture, that they were championing 
before the pandemic. I think that just stood them in such good stead. And what they said as part of that is your role is to constantly be asking questions, to be curious. And I want you to curate your own career. Go out there and see what skills are trending in your profession. Tell me what you want to do as your next job and your job after that. And tell me what's one alternative career track. And I think that's really useful. I don't think in some of our Western economies, we do a good job of educating people around skills. You know, I spent a lot of time in Asia. In Singapore, they have a um, skills consortium that via LinkedIn tells people what are the skills that are trending up and down, what skills actually pay the most versus more generalist skills. So as a young person, you not only get a spending account, so everyone at 21 gets a spending account for skills, but also you can make choices to say, do I want to learn these skills and play it safe because they feed lots of roles? Or do I want to kind of go for gold and go up a specialist skill? That I, I find fantastic because for me, it's matching that curiosity with real insight. We have those same insights in organizations. And Stephanie, you would know that. Only HR gets to see that. Only HR gets to see if you get into one of these roles, it's an accelerator. Why aren't we sharing it? Why don't we help people be curious outside, but be curious inside as well? Angie, there are just some thoughts off the top of my mind, maybe inspired by a prior conversation, but there were some of the things that I think leaders today could do well to focus on. I love it. It's one of the big skills of, I think, successful leaders are being empathetic. And it's an interesting, you know, empathy is something you could say, are you, is it natural to your own dis, you know, demeanor? Um, command and control type leaders tend to not do so well. And especially in this environment post-pandemic, I think financial pressures are really tough for companies. But employees typically will thrive when they work with an empathetic leader. So is that something, is that a skill in your opinion that can be learned? Because it might not be your your natural um, go-to. Well, Stephanie, you are so right with all of your comments there because actually every year in Global Talent Trends, I ask people, how much do you feel you're thriving from a scale of one to 10? And that's thriving in your health, wealth, and career. And people who are up at the very top end of thriving always work for a manager that they rate highly on balancing economics and empathy in decision-making. And I, I feel passionate about how do you balance e empathy and economics. And I found over the years, if I talk about it in terms of decision-making, people feel it, it it's not a soft topic. It's something they can measure and, and say, hey, do I think my manager does balance empathy and economics in decision-making? Not are they an empathetic person? And I think that distance helps us to, to talk about it in a way that isn't about it being innate. Now, you've also just touched on a big topic in psychology, which is when you think about EQ, empathy, is it an innate trait or is it a learned trait? And um, there are some psychometric tools that say it's innate and some that are learned. Honestly, I don't think that's, that's where the best time and attention is spent. I think just like with intelligence, look, we all get something, <laughs> but the more important thing about how successful you are with a leader is how you use it. Um, I know from my many, many years of profiling that the brightest people on IQ didn't necessarily make the best leaders. And I think with EQ, people who maybe recognize that there are aspects of their leadership style 
that lack in empathy and that they've got blind spots and are constantly trying to say, where, where do I have blind spots? Where do I need to work harder to understand different populations within my work team? Where can I rely on data to nudge me to make better decisions? We are in an age where we could buddy up with our digital pal um, to make sure we make good decisions around pay, good decisions around promotion, good decisions around who we give that special project to. Um, and I think the learned skill around empathy, for me, is much more prized than any innate capacity you might have had to start with. Because I think people who might be overly empathetic um, might be the ones that think they are uber persuasive and they might end up losing some of the actual skill. <laughs> I love what you were just saying, Kate. And I know Stephanie and I could pick your brain for hours and we promised 20-ish minutes. So I want to make sure our listeners get a chance to learn more about the great work that you're doing right now. How can people stay in touch with you? Can you share the title of your book and where people can buy it, please? Yep. So the title of the book is Work Different, 10 Truths for Winning in the People Age. Um, it has 10 truths in the book. We had a great collaboration on the last chapter with uh, Gen AI where we um, were going back and forth. And if you've read this book, um, how would you summarize, recommend it? And then the AI tool started to generate its own questions. The last one it generated is, if I read this book, what would I do differently with my team? And then it started to tell me some fantastic advice about how it would um, go in on Monday and have a different relationship, I think, including a cup of tea with one of his team members, uh, which, of course, was quite surprising when we did that. Um, so that's a, a bit about the book. It's full of musical references. Um, we are all... Um, HR and business leader nerds, but um, hopefully it is an accessible book. And as you said, Stephanie, a bit of a fun read. I also have a podcast series called uh, The New Shape of Work. Um, so here we get to speak to leading companies, many of which, uh, Emphasis, Nevada, some of the ones I've mentioned, Unilever, um, share some of their wisdom and how some of these truths have either been a wake-up call internally or have challenged them for some of the accepted wisdom we have in the world of work. Because some of that accepted wisdom is actually holding us back in ushering in what's next. And I think what's next is phenomenally exciting. Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Kate, for your time today. That's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. <laughs> Stephanie, Kate did not disappoint. I could literally, honestly, I'm sincere when I say this, I could spend five hours with her just picking her brain, especially trend spotters. I am not a trend spotter. I'm a trend follower. <laughs> so I love talking to people who can look to the future and see things. So great conversation. I'd love to hear from you. What were some of the takeaways from that? I love listening to her. I love what she's created. Um, this topic about empathy in terms of being such an important skill, I think not only as an individual, but as a leader and in making decisions because not all leaders are empathetic. But if leaders can understand the economics of the decision, but also what that means for the employees. So if you know your manager or your leader is making a decision with empathy, it's easier to accept the outcome if you don't like that outcome. But just knowing that they, they cared and they asked you your opinions. I think that's great. Again, the economics and empathy reminds me of a Marine Corps-ism that we used to have. You know, people first, mission always. Maybe I got that background. Mission first, people always, regardless, potato, potato. But the point being is that these two things can seem in conflict, but together we have to use them to guide our decision making. 
So I, I thought that was genius. And that's a really great business way of saying that we have to hold these two pieces in our mind to make a better decision. I was really inspired just by her guidance on the individual manager. What, what can you do to really meet people where they're at? So the concept of creating psychological safety. And if you're listening to this thinking, what exactly does that mean? I think a part of that would be empathy and making sure that people feel secure, people feel certain, people feel included, people feel that they're a part of a fair system, that there's fair exchanges, all elements. But if you ever want to go deep into learning about it, David Rock's work is great. And along that same line, and I'd love to hear what you've got to say about this, uh, Stephanie is just maintaining those peer relationships. I think that peers are often one of the most overlooked stakeholder groups that we have in our careers, just because we kind of sometimes view them as competitors. How can, why should we, how can we really collaborate? But love to hear about your thoughts with that too, as you grew in your career, the value of peer relationships. It, it's really important. Uh, you have to enjoy who you work with. And, you know, thankfully, I really have enjoyed all the people that I've worked with and my peers were really critical in helping me in my job and my progression. Part of it is investing time, investing time, getting to know your peers, um, uh, how you can support them. Uh, what do they like? You know, it doesn't always have to be work related. And when we're in an environment of this flexible work where there are more video conferences and not a lot of opportunities to meet in person, sometimes we forget the chit chat, you know, the small talk, how are you, what's going on with such and such. So peer relationships, they don't need to be competitive. They can actually be quite supportive. And it's, it's so valuable when you're going through tough things together, as opposed to being um, in a conflictual relationship. So for me, it's investment and really mean it, be genuine about it. Perfect guidance. Well, thank you everybody for listening to this Bet on You episode. Again, Angie Bukowski, you can find me at angieconnect.com. And Stephanie, where can people learn more about you? At blueskyambition.com. Have a great day, everybody. 